Hello everyone, this is Mukesh Gupta here. You're listening to Pushing Beyond the Obvious. Today we have with us uh, Scott. Uh, Scott, can I ask you to introduce yourself and probably the body of work that you've done so far so our audience can actually relate to whatever we speak after that? Yeah, well, thanks so much for having me, Mukesh. Um, so my name is Scott Hartley. I'm the author of a forthcoming book. Uh, it's called The Fuzzy and the Techie. Um, my background is sort of as a fuzzy in the tech world, if you will. Um, I, I graduated uh, in a, with a degree in political science and political theory um, in international relations, and then I found my way kind of into Silicon Valley. I had the fortune of, of being from Northern California and kind of the heart of Silicon Valley. And so, you know, I, had taken, uh, I took an HTML course in high school, and then I became an HTML editor at a failed startup in the late 90s. <laughs> Uh, you know, I, I didn't have the foresight of joining a company like Google uh, quite early enough, <laughs> but I did join them later um, and uh, spent a year with them in India and did some work with Google.org in, in Africa. Um, but always all along was sort of um, somebody that appreciated the analog uh, kind of world and the, uh, you know, the, uh, the physical world uh, and then spent a bunch of time working at, at tech companies. And so um, really, the book that I um, have coming out explores this sort of duality and uh, sort of faux opposition between the two and how, in fact, um, there are many people at the heart of technology that come from these various walks of life. And actually, they provide, um, you know, much needed perspective and sort of application of the technology and, and how we humanize the technology, um, how we apply it to some of the big, you know, meaningful problems in our lives. Um, and really, I got the, the sort of impetus to write the book, uh, spending the last five or so years in venture capital. Um, and so basically working um, with two different firms, one in New York and one on Sand Hill Road in California, um, where my job was to meet with early stage entrepreneurs at sort of the seed series A, series B level um, and, uh, you know, evaluate the, the team, the market, the technology, where we thought the world was going, um, you know, and then make investment decisions uh, around that. And one of the observations that I had was that um, so many of the really exciting companies we were meeting with were people that were, you know, for sure, you know, we had people coming from IIT and from MIT and all the, you know, fancy technical schools, Tsinghua University in China. Um, but we also had people coming from, you know, various walks of life where they really understood fashion, they really understood finance or media or, you know, industrial materials or any number of domains. And then they were partnered with the technologist to apply the tech to that problem. And so it kind of opened up this lens in my mind where I said, you know, wait a minute, this, this whole narrative about tech being this monolith where everybody studies computer science and drops out of middle school, you know, this is not, uh, it's not necessarily true. And, you know, certainly there are a lot of those people um, building the tech infrastructure and, and laying down the groundwork. But I think as we get to the sort of application layer of technology, there are more and more of these opportunities for anyone from you know any different background to sort of take the tech, um, assemble the pieces, and then apply it to what they know. Interesting. So I came to know about your work through uh, one of my uh, one of my contacts called Paul Kurcina. He introduced me to your blog, uh, and I started following your blog. And when um, your publicist actually reached out to me. Uh, asking if uh, uh, if uh, you would be a good fit for uh, for this show, I was pleasantly yeah. surprised, and um, she sent, she was kind enough to send me a, a copy of your book, and uh, uh, I read through almost uh, most of your book. I I think just twenty more pages to go, and I must say that uh, uh, the book uh, is a fascinating read, not just from a content perspective, but also the way you have written the. Uh, book and the kind of examples that you uh, talk about in this book. But before we even go there, I mean, you talk about the fuzzy and the techie. So 
for for people to understand what do you mean by a fuzzy and what do you mean by a techie yeah of course so these are terms um that i sort of commandeered that that were used on stanford university campus uh so the fuzzy and the techie were ways of referring to uh what people studied on campus and this goes back to the 1960s 1970s so it's not a new term on campus but it's one that's sort of fun um that that i i, I wanted to to use to kind of explain this duality um, but really, you know, the fuzzy on campus referred to somebody who studied the arts, the humanities, or the social sciences. So including things like economics, you know, commerce, things like that. Um, the techie, you know, was somebody who studied sort of hard, uh, hardcore engineering or um, some, of the, some of the technical sciences or computer science. And, uh, and really, you know, the, even though this question exists, it's sort of this faux, faux opposition, this sort of false assumption that you're one or the other because you know if you actually peel back the onion and you take a look at somebody who's working on on an engineering problem um, in a lot of times that requires customer research that requires sort of anthropological research to figure out what people want what they need you know so then is engineering a soft subject well you know it has elements of that you know and then you look at um, you look at security studies or international relations and so much of it has to do with um, you know, figuring out probabilistically when something is going to happen. So uh, there's elements of game theory, there are elements of um, sort of uh, statistical rigor. And so, you know, then is political science a technical subject? And so you kind of get into this, um, this gray area where you realize, okay, no one is truly a fuzzy or truly a techie. We're all a bit of both. And actually a lot of, um, you know, where innovation in here is, is in this sort of intersection between the two. Interesting. And the uh, uh, the idea that, you know, we have these fuzzies and the techies and when they come together is when innovation happens is very similar to the old uh, philosophy, uh, both uh, Chinese Buddhist philosophy of yin yang and, uh, uh, you know, uh, Indian philosophy as well, where it is all about, you know, having a balance of, uh, you know, uh, different things. And when I read your book, uh, that's what was striking to me that, you know, uh, um, I mean, like thousands of years before, people did refer to uh, these facts, and then we are rediscovering some of these as we go along. Yeah. <laughs> did that strike to you as well when you were writing this book? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I, I think that the you know looking inside um, again, kind of back to the perch of Sandhill Road and, and meeting all these founders, the realization that there was this sort of uh, duality or, or kind of two people coming together. Um, providing, you know, really it's about where you can have a creative skill sets. So if you're really good at um, at the technical side, you probably really need to find a co-founder or somebody early in the technology company, early in your company, um, who can really supplement sort of market development, maybe, uh, you know, uh, understanding the domain deeply. So if you're starting an insurance company, you know, you might be the technical wizard, but you probably need somebody who comes out of 30 years of experience in the insurance industry who really understands the problems, really knows where the heart attacks are, not just the headaches. Because, you know, if you're trying to build a, you know, multi-million dollar business, unicorn business, and, you know, is what we call it in, uh, <laughs> in, uh, in Silicon Valley, um, you know, these, these take uh, a real understanding of where those pain points are that, are that are massive, where there's willingness to pay. And oftentimes that takes the insight of somebody who spent a lot of years in the industry. So, you know, I, while I appreciate sort of the first principles approach of thinking things from the ground up, I also appreciate the approach of involving people that have spent a lot of time in the industry, 
you know, questioning them, asking, um, you know, where, where you can learn from, from those experiences. And so I do think that um, this sort of yin and the yang and, uh, you know, this sort of balance uh, of both sides is really helpful. And you see that, you know, at a lot of successful companies, if you look at Mark Zuckerberg, um, people often think, okay, he's just this lightning fast coder that, you know, uh, dropped out of Harvard and, and, and built Facebook because he was a technical genius. Um, well, to be sure, he had, you know, ability to, to create the basic prototype and the MVP, you know, minimum viable product and those sorts of things. Um, you know, he also had to build a whole team around him. So it was really the conviction that he had to get people like Sheryl Sandberg, uh, you know, who gave up almost a C-suite position at Google, you know, high VP, probably on the cusp of getting to run, you know, a significant portion of, of Alphabet down the road, um, you know, and, and, and convincing her to leave and join this startup with, uh, you know, some promise, but at the, in 2007, it was far less uh, writing on the wall or far less understood that it was going to be the company that it is today. True. And you also talk about this uh, um, phenomenon in uh, multiple startups, not just Facebook. You also talk about, you know, people that Google hired in order to be able to, uh, you know, bring in the humanity side. Uh, there was a philosopher in residence uh, at Google. And, you know, this is something that normally is never talked, never spoken about in, in the public uh, uh, medium. And it is always that, you know, these technical wizards who, you know, uh, just by the sheer uh, technical brilliance are able to bring out uh, these products which then go on to become multi-million dollar or multi-billion dollar industries at, uh, at some point in time. Yeah, it's true. You know, and there's obviously uh, there's obviously truth to that as well. And so it's not sort of a one side or the other side. It's it's that you know both of these sides are, are really valuable. And you know, you look at Apple, for example. Um, obviously, Steve Wozniak was a technical genius behind. You know, apparently, he, you know, he wrote thousands and millions of lines of code, and and people said he had almost no errors in his code. So obviously, he was incredibly good at what he did. But then you look at Steve Jobs, obviously, bringing calligraphy, bringing sort of an appreciation of, of liberal arts from Reed College, where he dropped out, um, to, you know, to create a graphical user interface, to create sort of the, the WYSIWYG interface of, of multiple type fonts and, and folder systems and sort of the intuitive structuring of, of the desktop computer. Um, and, and so, you know, that's, that's obviously a strong example. And if you look at what Apple's done to preserve the legacy of Steve Jobs, they actually brought in the former dean of the Yale School of Management to run something they called Apple University. And somebody who's been you know, helpful and, and kind of a mentor to me is, uh, is a moral philosopher, this guy named Josh Cohen. And Josh uh, studied under John Rawls at Harvard, brilliant you know, political thinker of the, of the day, kind of moral philosopher. And, uh, and Josh gave up a 10-year position at Stanford University where he taught law and ethics and political science and he he gave all that up to go work at apple as sort of an in-house philosopher and uh you know and he was he, delivering lectures at apple university and really trying to help preserve some of the legacy of, of steve jobs and how they approach product development how they think about things a little bit differently um so one of the lectures that that he um was you know nice enough to share with me uh was a lecture on sort of the uh the design uh, decisions of Frederick Law Olmsted when he was designing Central Park in New York City, and uh, at the time, you know, Central Park was uh, this sort of oasis of, of trees and and uh, you know and vegetation in the heart of, of of this urban area. And at the time, only the very wealthy people had the chance to escape the city and go up to the Hudson River Valley and, and sort of uh, get away from 
the bustle of, of the city. And so he really wanted to give the common people an appreciation for the outdoors. And so the way he did that in a, from a design standpoint was to have curved paths through the park. And so that every uh, walk along a path would be discovery. You know, you would never be able to see all the way ahead because the path was curved. And so you would constantly be walking and rediscovering new things about nature. And so it was a very small, poignant example of a design element that, you know, comes from the park services, right? It comes from Frederick Law Olmsted and architecture and landscape design and, um, and, and applying that to Apple. You know, and you think of this is not the the thing that you would expect to hear at a lecture at Apple. Um, yet this is the this is the kind of thinking that uh, really sort of breaks the mold and makes people you know quote unquote think different. Right? Interesting. And uh, see, there is this uh, entire narrative uh, around uh, uh, you know technology uh, kind of you know taking away all the jobs from humans, right from you know uh, manufacturing jobs to start with uh, with robot robots taking over and then there is this entire thing around uh, with alphago uh, you know with um, uh, with there are this uh, there are these uh, uh, applications which are today uh, being hired as lawyers who are able to uh, you know the artificial intelligence which is able to bring uh, increase the amount of uh, savings that people have uh, from parking tickets and other uh, petty th- petty crimes and then there is this entire theme around you know artificial intelligence creating uh, uh, images creating art uh, draw drawing uh, landscapes by learning from the old masters and this entire thing around you know artificial artificial intelligence able to write lyrics uh, i've even seen a movie which was conceptualized written scripted and directed by artificial intelligence i mean in this is the narrative that seems to be occupying the public consciousness uh there is no parallel or there is no contradicting narrative at all which is a little um, surprising as well as which is a little alarming for me so what do you think is the reason uh, for this is it just because it's sexy uh, it's new and that's why it's more uh, uh, commonly spoken about and where do you see this happening and where do you see this going it's a great question i mean this is you're right this is you can't open your laptop without seeing can't pick up your phone without seeing uh, 15 headlines about ai taking over this or that um you know i was was listening to a panel last week um with multiple people from computer science departments across you know across america and uh you know it's obviously part of the public mind share and and i don't know you know it's interesting from the venture lens 5 years ago we heard the term big data all the time every company um regardless of which industry it was uh, applying technology to was becoming a big data company in quotes you know and we we kind of joked about it internally if you know well just put big data on the slides and suddenly you'll you'll raise venture capital and i think that that's certainly become artificial intelligence so i think there is you know for many companies there's a conflation of um modern programming techniques that have been around for a number of years um you know and sort of stacking these together in different ways and suddenly now we have a term for that and we call it artificial intelligence and really that runs a whole spectrum of things from alphago which you know truly is uh stacking some of these deep learning techniques and adversarial neural networks and uh using training data but then also being able to sort of extrapolate data uh you know with without sort of humans in the room and you know there are elements of of pushing this genre forward in very significant ways but i think we also conflate a lot of the technologies as always being that and so um you know really there's a whole gamut of of types of technologies out there and i think you know this sort of 
the, the leading edge uh, certainly has some of these capabilities, but then there are a lot of people that are hit riding on the coattails of this um, to raise capital and you know promote their business and, and all that. So I think we need to take some of it with, with a grain of salt. That said, um, obviously the, the changes are significant um, for you know employment and for uh, and for those those aspects um, of society. And so I, I do think the conversations about um, you know changes in unemployment or technological unemployment or or the need for a potential basic income, things like that, I really think those are uh, necessary parts of the conversation we should be having because as these technologies gain capability and as the capability does you know wedge its way deeper and deeper into our world, um, you know, we have to be thinking about those things. But at the same time, you know, there, there was a study that came out a couple years ago with uh, Oxford University where they looked at U.S. Uh, jobs and they said, you know, with, by the year 2025, uh, 47% of all U.S. Uh, employment will be at high risk of automation. And this sort of set off alarm bells. Um, and in January this year, McKinsey Global Institute, the, the consulting firm and sort of the think tank within the consulting firm, came out with a study that looked at uh, tasks within jobs. And so they took jobs and they said, well, every job is not the same. You know, jobs have many different types of tasks within them. And let's take a look at the technologies that are out there, what the capability sets of those technologies are, and then let's match that with some of the tasks that make up these employment, uh, these jobs. And, you know, let's see sort of technologically what's capable of being automated. And then let's think about what's the timeline of actual, like, uh, labor and capital substitution. These will take management decisions. These will require board meetings. These will require investment. Um, obviously, you know, if, if you have a robot that can make hamburgers, uh, you know, that's... Uh, that's, that's great, but the robot's not also going to take out the trash and greet the customer and do many other things. So then you have to look at the substitution effect of, you know, well, you could substitute capital for labor in some contexts, but not all contexts. And so you know, what, what the timeline is for this, um, nobody knows. Uh, McKinsey estimated between 8 and 28 years. What they also estimated was that within 60% uh, of jobs, 30% of the tasks were things that could be substituted away and technologically capable of being substituted away with current technology. So, you know, I think when we take a step back and uh, it goes back to the kind of core thesis of the book um, and, you know, making the liberal arts sort of front and center again in how we think about the world, I think we've, we've adopted this sort of Twitter mentality of reading the headline, reading the 140 characters, and then saying, okay, I get it, I know the answer. And in many of these articles, when I actually read down to the 10th paragraph in, you know, the piece in the Atlantic or the piece in sort of a long form journal where they really explore sort of the nuances of these questions, um, you'll often find that, you know, Manuela Veloso from Carnegie Mellon's machine learning uh, department, you know, you get down to the, not the headline, but you, you get down to the paragraph 10 and they say, well, you know, we've really got a long way to go. And actually over time, it's more about the intertwining of humanity and, and AI. And it's about um, sort of the, the, the only, the usefulness of either of these is sort of with respect to the other. And uh, so obviously there are things like crunching numbers, um, running analyses of data, um, which machines will do infinitely better than humans. You know, they're processing at the speed of light, we're processing at the speed of biochemistry and, and, and all that. And, um, you know, but there are other things where we say, okay, well, who's, you know, who's asking questions of how the data was curated? Like, who's asking questions of what potential bias in the data might be? How do we frame the data? Um, you know, where did the answer come from? The, one of the things with neural nets um, and, and some of this new technology is maybe they can get the right answer, 
But if we don't have an explanation for how they got to that right answer, um, in some contexts, uh, that won't be sufficient. And so in some contexts where there's, say, legal liability or something like that, um, you know, companies may, may or may not be able to substitute technology for, for labor. But at some point, uh, you know, they, they might not be willing to do that because of uh, it, the ability to explain that to customers, the ability to explain that to somebody. So I think there are a lot of nuances behind the headlines. And I think getting back to the sort of um, liberal arts sort of inquiry into who we are and, and what, we, what we want out of the world and, and these sorts of questions, um, these are really the kind of incumbent questions we should be asking of, uh, of, the, of the AI revolution as well. Yeah, and I also uh, think this explains a, a lot of confusion or a lot of uh, indecisiveness that I see in a lot of these tech companies or organizations which want to leverage some of these technologies. For example, um, uh, in my current role, uh, uh, I know that there are a lot of organizations that are looking at exploring how can they leverage uh, IoT uh, in their businesses, how can they leverage big data in their businesses. And every time they come up... Uh, uh, short on the right use cases, which is where the fuzziness or the ability to understand humanity and uh, you know how uh, machines, humans, and human-to-human -human interaction, human-to-machine interaction can work, can actually play a big role in identifying what those potential use cases are, where some of these technologies can be applied. I mean, the technology is there, but I think the understanding of where the technology can be applied and in a way that augments the human capabilities as well is something that is still uh, missing in a lot of places. Yeah, I think uh, I think it's really it's really important to sort of uh, to, to to kind of address that because you know if you look at um, for example, there's one company that I, I talk about in the book, and it's a company called Stitch Fix. And Stitch Fix is uh, it's an algorithmic fashion company. So what they do is if you've heard of you know or used Netflix, uh, you know Netflix obviously provides uh, movies. Uh, they algorithmically determine based on uh, characteristics of movies that you've liked before. Uh, they extrapolate that out. They obviously can't ask you if you like every every movie, but they, uh, you know, they they take a a subset of the movies that you have liked. They look at the parameters around that, and and they characterize you know where you may or may not like movies in the future. And similarly, Stitch Fix does this with fashion. So they send you five items of clothing in a box, and you keep three of the items, and you send two of them back. And on each item of clothing, they have you know 100 to 150 characteristics of that clothing tracked. So they say, okay, this has a button-down collar. It has a certain you know width lapel and, and these different features. This may be a fashion-forward shirt, which means you know Mukesh has a very fashion-forward sense of style and less classic or less hipster. And you know they classify you a certain way. But what's really fascinating about um, Stitch Fix is they've gone from zero to 500 million dollars in revenue in about five years. Um, the founder, Katrina Lake, she's not deeply technical. She was technical enough to be able to explain her product and hire people around her. Uh, she studied economics and business. Um, but she was able to convince a guy named Eric Coulson, who ran data science and, and algorithms for Netflix, to leave his you know, high-paying um, senior-level position at Netflix to join her in this startup. And, you know, and what they did was uh, basically pair human and machine. So they, they say that they have both their machine algorithm, which is their M algorithm, and they have their human algorithm, which is their H algorithm. And what they mean by this is you know, they use 60-plus uh, data scientists, PhDs, machine learning people um, to really look at the characteristics in the clothing and be able to create a list. So when we send a box to Mukesh, um, we know that, okay, here are 10 items of clothing that we think you may like. 
But then what happens is rather than just sending those 10 items to you directly, those 10 items go to a stylist who is a human-to-human -human interface between the technology layer of, of Stitch Fix and Mukesh as a person. And they might know, okay, you know, you're based in a certain city in India, you're based in Bangalore, or you have this set of preferences, um, you're part of this demographic group. Um, and so they, they start peeling back so the onion on uh, sort of what types of preferences you might have within that subset of ten, the 10 items of clothing, and they do the last mile delivery of those final five. And what they found is that people have inherent biases, and so they can actually use their M algorithm to de-bias the human, but the human is essential to sort of provide that last mile delivery. And so if you look at the, the composition of the company, you know, it's three or 4,000 human stylists, and it's 60 or so data scientists, and, uh, you know, and I think that has ramifications for what we'll see, you know, in general, I think in other companies where there'll be massive elements of data science and elements of, of algorithmic determination of certain things. Those will be, you know, helped and, and managed by a set of uh, very technical uh, data scientists. Uh, and then you'll have this whole other set of uh, human to human interface uh, people. And so I think we'll see this sort of duality of the same way that Stitch Fix has the fuzzy and the techie or the human and the machine algorithm. Interesting. And uh, uh, why do you think uh, uh, it is important uh, 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 to, uh, okay, let me rephrase this question. So you spoke about the, uh, uh, the M algorithm and the H algorithm uh, that uh, Stitch Fix uses in order to be able to deliver the right kind of or the five uh, pieces of clothing to the uh, to the customer and looks like it's getting a lot of traction because of uh, because of this because I mean of course they are growing so which means that people do like what they're recommending and are buying from those set of people set of clothes that they get but don't you think this is actually uh, restricting uh, uh, your choices uh, I, I know that you talk about that in your book as well as to you know uh, how all of these recommendation engines are actually creating kind of an echo chamber in, within which we are all living and that kind of leads away to the deep um, uh, sense of, uh, um, how do I put it, uh, the world, the entire world seems to be divided and there is there seems to be no middle ground where no both sides of the uh, uh, world can actually come together, talk to each other and maybe exchange views and maybe potentially uh, are able to you know switch sides at some point in time, which seems to be a big concern, not just in the technology world, but also in the political world. I see that happening across the world, whether it is the US, whether it is Europe, whether it is India or China. So, yeah. so what are your thoughts on that and how is it that we can actually avoid something like this getting more intensified? Yeah, it's, it's, it's interesting. I mean, looking at, at Facebook, for example, uh, early on, I know that photo tagging, so tagging people's pictures uh, with, with, with names was something that led to massive virality within the, the Facebook product. So, you know, early on, uh, you could only have one profile picture. And then uh, they noticed in the user behavior, so it goes back to sort of uh, the fuzzy anthropological kind of side of things. But through observing user behavior, um, what they realized at early Facebook was that people were basically going, they were stumbling from page to page to page just to look at people's profile pictures, if they had changed or not. And so they realized that the user behavior behind how people were browsing Facebook was actually looking at photos. And so photos became the centerpiece. They, they launched photos as a product. And then photo tagging uh, was, was introduced as well. And 
that was something that uh, I don't know if you were on the platform in 2004, 2005, but that, you know, the photo tagging, when you'd get an email and you would say you were tagged in a photo, that was a, that was a big deal. And that drew you back into the platform, uh, created that sort of viral hook. One of the early um, features that I, I thought was amazing was, was photo tagging because it, it mitigated um, this notion of homophily or, or kind of birds of a feather flock together. So homophily is uh, kind of love of the same. And I think we all have this problem where we tend to have friends that are a little bit like us. We have people that, you know, if you're, if you're a doctor in, in Mumbai, you, chances are you hang out with other doctors in Mumbai. Um, you know, and that's, that's not a failure of, of any one of us, but that's just sort of human nature of, of how we kind of come together and, uh, and share things. And I think one of the brilliant things of photo tagging was early on, it actually pushed you to this sort of frontier of seeing other, because you would be tagged in a photo and then maybe others would be tagged in the photo and you could very quickly stumble your way into a world. I had, you know, I lived in India for a year and I had a number of friends uh, from India and Pakistan and all over, all over different parts of the world. And within two or three clicks, I would find myself at a, at a wedding party, you know, up in, uh, in Punjab or something. And I would be looking at all these photos and I would say, wow, you know, this is a, this is a part of the world that I hadn't been exposed to before. And it actually opened up my eyes and it, it led me to take trips there and, and to experience that, that world. And so for me, um, that was something that really broke down the barriers that sort of algorithmically determined barriers of how I was, um, kind of corralled through Facebook. So Early on, I think that that was something that uh, was really powerful to kind of mitigate homophily or to give people a wider aperture to different parts of the world. I think, you know, with the rise of newsfeed, we've almost seen a closing down of that in some ways, where now, you know, if you're here in, in, in the United States, you know, there's, there's a joke about there being a red feed and a blue feed, because if you have a bunch of Republican friends, chances are you see red feed, uh, you see a lot of Republican uh proponents uh, posting things that are, you know, that are pro-Trump or anti-Obama uh, and vice versa. And so um, I, I do think that, that we've got to sort of take a step back and, uh, you know, realize that uh, that people are spending an inordinate amount of time interfacing with the world through these uh, lenses, through these technological lenses. Um, and there's somebody that, you know, that, that I talk about in the book uh, who is doing a good job of raising awareness around this concept. But uh, a guy named Tristan Harris, who he founded uh, a company called Apture back in 2007. Uh, he sold that company to Google, and then he became Google's in-house uh, product philosopher. And uh, this is sort of an invented title that he said, I'm going to be the product philosopher. But then he owned up to it, and he started uh, doing analyses on how very few product managers sitting mostly in Mountain View, California, were making decisions that were having ramifications uh, for billions of users around the planet. Um, and, and sort of taking a step back and saying, wait a minute, who should be in the room? How should we be thinking about some of these product decisions? Because the opportunity cost of taking uh, someone's attention, taking somebody in and having them spend 30 more seconds in our app is actually 30 sec seconds that that person is no longer doing what they would otherwise be doing in the physical analog world. So we need to be conscious and have this sort of mentality about time well spent, uh, which is the name of his movement. Um, and I think that, you know, more people are starting to pay attention to this, this notion, you know, as we have um, computers uh, on our desktops and computers in our pockets in the form of smartphones. Um, you know, Steve Jobs had this quote uh, many years ago where he said he wanted the personal computer to be a bicycle for the mind. And Tristan has a, a phrase where he calls the, slot the, the cell phone a slot machine in our pocket. And you kind of look at this disconnect between what Steve Jobs' vision for the iPhone probably was 
and what it's kind of become in our pockets. You know, and how do we remain, uh, how do we remain conscious of this? Uh, who should be in the room asking some of these questions? Uh, you know, should there be any sort of oversight in the same way that, uh, you know, we often show calorie counts uh, in restaurants where people may be conscious of their health and people can still make whatever decision they choose about what they choose to eat, whether it's veg or non-veg or this or that. Um, but, you know, but they at least have sort of the, the information, the full set of information when they make that decision. Um, and so those are, those are questions that I think we should, we should definitely be asking. So and and given uh, or in addition to what uh, is happening in the tech world, there is all this entire movement of uh, uh, behavioral psychology and you know uh, uh, the entire movement uh, probably led by B J Fogg and uh, people like him uh, who are using uh, technology to uh, build habits amongst humans. I mean, of course, B J Fogg uh, also talks about the ethics of. Uh, using some of these technologies, so does uh, uh, Cass Sunstein and uh, Richard Thaler in their book uh, Nudge. But uh, ultimately, I think it all boils down to every entrepreneur, every product manager who is building a product using persuasive technology uh, to decide uh, the cost of uh, uh, you know having that attention from uh, the user. And uh, I mean, uh, Google can today. I would I can say that Google can afford to. Uh, think of those terms, but I'm not. I'm. I'm not so sure that you know some of the startups uh, that are still trying, still trying to uh, gain momentum, are thinking in those terms at all. I mean, all they want is uh, as much attention as possible so that they can raise money. So I mean, it's it's a very yeah. delicate yeah. situation that we are in right now. And I think you're you're totally you're totally right about that. You know, Google has in some ways the responsibility and the luxury of, of having to think about these things. But you're right. You know, if you're uh, a seed backed, Series A backed startup, and you're trying to grow, 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 you got to have that graph up and to the right, and you've got <laughs> limited runway based on the the capital that you've raised, and you've got to prove that there's uh, high engagement. You know, that's the term that we we love to use. Um, you know. And that's it's very true, and I think I think one one sort of taking a step back that um, you know engagement is not necessarily a bad thing, and uh, and attention is not necessarily a bad thing either. And so using um, some of the behavioral characteristics to nudge behavior one way or the other, um, these are sort of uh, normative uh, neutral uh, statements. You know, so it can be good, it can be used for harm, it can be used for um, for, for for good. And I think you know in in the book I also talk about a number of examples where. These are used in really positive ways. So in, in the United States, there's a, a real epidemic of diabetes. And diabetes, a lot of times, has to do with diet. It has to do with, um, with the amount of exercise that you get. Um, and so there's one entrepreneur who I talk about um, named Sean Duffy, who spent time at IDEO, the design firm, and, and did medical work before that, and really sort of blended. He's a perfect blend of this sort of fuzzy and techie because um, Sean wasn't deeply... Uh, technical in the sense of, of writing all the code for his company, which is called Omada Health. Um, but he did understand some of the, the medicine and the science. And, uh, and then he also understood some of the behavioral aspects. And what, what he's doing is using sort of the smartphone to uh, engage people to get off the couch, engage people to sort of target their, their weight loss, um, that, that they, may be, they may have these goals where, you know, they've been told you have pre-diabetic condition where if you don't start exercising more and you don't uh, change your diet, you're going to get diabetes, and that's going to have a big impact on your lifestyle. But, you know, in in sort of the, 
in sort of the current universe, uh, either the intervention programs are extremely uh, invasive and extremely expensive where they involve human-to-human -human contact, or it's a, it's a flyer, a pamphlet, or a piece of paper where it says, take this home, change your habits, good luck. And most people, you know, most people can't change that way. And so what Omada does is it uses these nudges on your phone to sort of get you out of, uh, get you out of the house, to get you moving. They have a connected scale where you have a small group of people and you weigh in and people share their progress. Uh, and there's this whole social element to it. And so they've actually found that, um, you know, 8% of people in the U.S. have type 2 diabetes where they have this precondition to, to get diabetes. Um, they found that, you know, with 7% of your, uh, by losing 7% of your body mass, uh, you had a 58% reduction in getting diabetes. So they know that if you lose weight, it really helps stop this. Um, and, and what they found with Omada is that by having these sort of behavioral nudges baked into the cell phone, baked into the scale, baked into the community that they work with, they've had 80% of people who go through the program actually lose this 7% of, of, their, of their body weight and then have this 58% reduction in the chance of getting diabetes. So I think it's a great example of, you know, changing habits, nudging people one way or the other, um, you know, can certainly lead us to scroll Instagram for hours and hours and hours, <laughs> you know, and it, it can also lead us to, you know, get out of the house and change our habits and, and stop ourselves from, you know, having this condition uh, down the road. So, so I think that, you know, we can look at it both ways. Yeah, I think it all boils down to how we use uh, uh, technology uh, for ourselves. I think uh, the most human uh, touch of all. So let's uh, uh, change, uh, uh, shift gears a little bit. Uh, now that um, you've written this uh, great book uh, and my audience is uh, entrepreneurs who, have, who are seeing already some success. So based on what you have seen in while writing this book, what do you think the entrepreneurs uh, should be thinking about or should be doing in order to you know take their business to the next level are there any you know uh, one two three things that you think uh, they should definitely look at you know one of the one of the interesting things that i experienced in the process of writing the book was the parallels that it has to the startup world and so having spent uh you know years in venture capital and, and meeting with all these entrepreneurs and then before that at, at google and briefly at facebook I've, I've been part of this entrepreneurial community for a long time, and, uh, but I hadn't yet, uh, haven't yet started sort of my own full platform of, of a startup. And so I, I was remiss in, you know, in that sense. And, and so the, the book has really become that for me. And in many ways, I would say that recognize that nobody can have the conviction about your subject or your idea more than you, and nobody's going to help you get to the next level uh, as much as you. And so it's, it's that conviction of really sort of being the advocate for whatever you believe and then allowing other people to come into the fold and help you get there. Um, but, but I found with the book that, you know, it wouldn't have happened had I waited around for other people to sort of pat me on the back and say, I believe, I believe what you're saying is true. Or, you know, most people early on, they say, that's, that's a crazy idea or that's been done before. Or, you know, why are you going to waste all your time doing that? It's a really low return on time or that's... So everyone has an opinion, right? And I, I would say that um, one of the things I used to say in venture capital was you don't need everyone to like you, but you need someone to love you. And uh, I think that goes for, for books, that goes for startups, that goes for a lot of things. And so, you know, continue to have that conviction in, in, in whatever you believe. Um, 
And then, you know, the other is, uh, I think we're moving to this sort of application layer of, of technology where, you know, the infrastructure has been laid down in, in different ways. And, and a lot of these tools have become really democratized. So you look at machine learning now, TensorFlow is basically open source, uh, you know, with, with, with Arduinos and Raspberry Pis. And, I mean, there's an incredible suite of, uh, of tools out there. Um, you know, not to mention the general assemblies and the code academies and the tree houses and all the different platforms online and offline to continue to upskill. And so I would say don't, you know, don't rest on your laurels. You may have studied computer science uh, as an undergrad. You may have studied commerce or whatever it may be. Um, but really, uh, the proxies for evaluation of your skills are getting closer and closer tied to what you know today. And so uh, it's really incumbent upon all of us to continue to learn as we go through our, our worlds. And Matt Breimer, uh, who founded uh, General Assembly and uh, is based in New York, he's actually a sociology major from, from Yale. And so he was not a technical guy, but he founded this uh, urban community college for creating technical literacy. And I think it's such a great uh, sort of ironic story that people would say, well, how did this sociology mayor, you know, major create this, uh, this tech platform? But, uh, but Matt was brilliant in the sense that he recognized the value of community. Um, he recognized the value of uh, keeping your education, quote unquote, in beta, you know, always sort of being a work in progress. And um, that, you know, going to a community college uh, in, in the United States, at least, was often seen to be sort of. Uh, you live in the suburbs and, and maybe you take a class at night um, and he sort of reinvented this idea and brought it right into the urban center and said, no, this is something that whether you're a high, you know, highly successful person working at an investment bank or in consulting or whatever it might be, you still may want to learn some of these new skills. You still want to take a JavaScript class at night or you want to, you know, learn uh, Ruby on Rails or you want to just understand the basics of machine learning. Um, and so those are things that I think we have to continually reinvest in ourselves. True. And, and uh, I think if I have to uh, uh, kind of, you know, put it in my own words, uh, based on whatever you just said, and my understanding is that, you know, if you are already a techie, continue to upgrade your skills uh, from a technology perspective. But at the same time, uh, you know, don't uh, uh, leave the human element or the human touch uh, for sure. And if you are a, a fuzzy, you know, who understands how humans behave, please continue to invest uh, uh, in understanding some of these technological layers. In your book, you really uh, very, very well, well explain the entire concept of democratization of technology and you know how the different elements that are required from a technology perspective are already there. And all you need to do is probably be able to understand them well enough to be able to stitch them together and you know create something interesting along with the, your human uh, interactions. Yeah, there's a great there's a great line uh, about being not a full stack developer, but becoming a full stack integrator. And um, I think that you know the, the sort of modular building blocks are getting bigger and bigger and bigger. And uh, and so you know you don't have to sort of code on the metal anymore. You you know now we're abstracting layer and layer away. And if you look at some of the tools today, you know there's there's a company out of Holland called Framer. And uh, Framer allows you to build real-time prototypes um, by either manipulating sketch files. Uh, sketch is sort of the new version of Photoshop. Uh, it's you know online. It's it's also I believe a Dutch company. And uh, and so using Sketch or manipulating the code, you can actually manipulate either side and the other changes. And it's fa it's fascinating. You have basically a developer environment to create a prototype, 
but somebody uh, with no no sort of technical ability can manipulate the visual imagery and, cha- and that changes the code. Good. And then somebody with a technical mind can manipulate the code and that changes the visual imagery. And so I think we're getting more to a, a place where this this sort of uh, this is possible from both sides. Um, and I think what uh, what uh, really is uh, uh, or can potentially be the differentiating factor uh, as we go along. Uh, this trajectory uh, is human imagination and ingenuity. I think uh, whether you are a, a techie or whether you are a fuzzy, what will matter most is your ability to imagine a future uh, where you know uh, you are able to solve a particular kind of a problem and go after uh, that uh, uh, future is what actually will uh, will pave the way for success. I mean, at, at least that's my uh, understanding. Yeah, so Mark Andreessen, who's obviously the creator of Netscape, the browser, and then uh, you know one of the founders of Andreessen Horowitz, a venture capital firm, uh, Andreessen said a couple years back, you know how software was eating the world, and I think to, to kind of flip that around, software is feeding the world. Software is actually being applied to all these different domains uh, where it's incumbent upon us coming from different backgrounds, from different understandings, um, to be able to apply this technology meaningfully. So, you know, if you come out of uh, various walks of life where you really understand agriculture or you really understand, uh, you know, construction and urbanization or you really understand manufacturing processes, you know, these are the worlds that are ripe for, for example, for the Internet of Things to come into a manufacturing context or uh, for sensors to come into an urban context for making buildings run more efficiently or for energy consumption, things like that. Um, so, you know, these require people coming from these walks of life and then partnering with a technologist maybe to build some of the, some of the tools um, or using some of these platforms to upskill on their own enough to build a prototype, to raise capital, to then, you know, hire the team around them. Um, but exactly as you say, you know, as software feeds the world, um, we really need more people from different backgrounds to come in and, and, and apply the technology meaningfully. Yeah. So I think we are kind of nearing the end of the time that we've got. So maybe, you know, we'll shift uh, gears again and uh, get into a, a rapid fire kind of a mode. Uh, yeah. So if you were to thank someone uh, publicly uh, uh, outside of your parents, who would that be and why? Well, I think so as a as a, I, I didn't grow up playing uh, playing cricket, but I've been to my fair share of, of ODIs and, and Cricket World Cup. But I did grow up uh, playing football, um, European style, not American <laughs> style. And uh, one person I would definitely thank would be my soccer coach uh, th- during my sort of high school years. Um, my coach, he was one of these guys that made us, uh, you know, wake up at seven, eight in the morning on a Saturday. And it, whether it was raining or muddy or whatever, we, we were always out in the fields, we were running. And one of the lines that he would say is, you know, he would name one of our rivals and he would say, those guys are sleeping right now. You know, those guys, they went out too late last night. They're, you know, they're hungover. They're still in bed. And the only time that you're getting better uh, is when they're asleep and you're working, you know? And so I think it was this mentality of, uh, of sort of put in the time. Uh, and and, and more, more than that, you know, I still think I have that mentality where, it'll be snowing in New York or raining in New York or uh, something like that. And I feel more inclined to go, you know, to go for a run or go do something like that because I know that everybody else is sitting at home on the couch. (laughs) Interesting. So again, uh, so if you have to uh, apologize to someone publicly, uh, uh, who would that be and why? 
Well, that probably probably would be my girlfriend for spending too much time writing this book. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Um, so you've also run uh, I'm I'm uh, Mountain Seventy Point Three. So what have you learned uh, having done that twice, if I remember correctly? Yeah. So I, I I've done a few uh, marathon events, and and like you said, one uh, I did one Ironman Seventy Point Three, which it requires about two kilometer swim, about. 70 no 90 kilometer bike and then about a 20 kilometer uh, run at the end and uh really i mean that i did it in mexico and it was about 35 or 40 degrees celsius it was terribly hot and uh toward the end of the race it really sort of tested my own willpower and, and ability to to finish the race and i actually ended up finishing but uh i i ended up finishing literally over the line and then just you know, collapsing when I, when I crossed the line and I had to get an IV, you know, for fluids, uh, in my arm and, and the whole, the whole nine yards. And it was really kind of testing my own physical limits. And so I think when you do something like that, it really, uh, really helps you realize that, you know, your day-to-day problems aren't so big. And, you know, if you have to stay up late to get something done or, or whatever, uh, you can definitely do it. <laughs> Interesting. So the next question is, uh, you know, uh, every one of us needs to continuously learn and uh, uh, stay relevant. We spoke about that a little while earlier as well. So how do you continue to learn and uh, uh, stay relevant in the, in an ever-changing world? Yeah, so one of the challenges with, with the book is, you know, you I think you have to consume information and then you have to produce information. Um, and so... Or, or hopefully produce knowledge, you know, take information in and then convert it into something that's meaningful and, 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 and convert it to knowledge. Um, and I think for me, I, I use a tool called Pocket, which I really enjoy, um, where I feel like people send me articles a lot and I'm, I'm constantly seeing things on, on Twitter or, or different, different uh, you know, online platforms. And to be able to save them all to Pocket, have an offline set of PDFs that I could look at on my phone or look at while I was on the move, um, that that was really helpful to me. Uh, so being able to track information and tag it um, and put it into different categories. So if I could basically save all you know articles on artificial intelligence to one folder uh, or something like that, and then I could read it later. Um, I also find that uh, I'm re- I'm reading a fiction book right now for the first time in a while because I've been sort of in this nonfiction. Uh, you know, process of of consuming information to then tie into my own book. And uh, the process of going back to fiction has been really wonderful. And I've realized as well that, you know, the, the fiction writing, uh, it just has so much more color and nuance and empathy and, and, and flavor of, of experiencing a different world. So right now I'm, I'm reading a book called The North Water. And it's, it's about a whaling ship um, out of the Shetland Islands in northern Scotland that takes place in the 1850s. And, um, you know, you just feel completely immersed in that world. I was reading it last night. And I still feel kind of completely immersed in that world and the characters. And, uh, and I think that there's something about that experience as well to kind of get out of the rut of, you know, we can read, uh, there's diminishing returns, right? Once you've read 50 articles on machine learning and AI, <laughs> yeah. uh, at some point to, to have something truly be accretive to how you see the world, maybe you need to take a step back and do something totally different, you know, go for a run or, or read a book of fiction or something like that that kind of opens your eyes in a different way. Okay, so uh, the show is called Pushing Beyond the Obvious. Um, so what is so obvious to you that people all the time miss? Well, I think 
I think my answer to that is easy, and it's it's my book, <laughs> because uh, basically, uh, you know, coming out of Silicon Valley and and sitting uh, on Sand Hill, there there really was this narrative that if you study STEM, science, technology, engineering, and math, you have the golden ticket to future relevance. And I think as technology becomes more democratized and as these tools become more available, it's actually these human skills that become increasingly relevant as well. Not to discount technology, not to discount technical literacy. Those are very important things. Um, But I think reinvesting in these human aspects, because if you think about where AI and, and machine learning go, they start to take away the rote aspects of our jobs. They start to take away the things that are very straightforward and scripted and have best practices. And the things that then remain are the things that are more complex, where we have to trade tasks between the two of us. And as we trade tasks, those require collaboration, those require communication, those require understanding your perspective and mine, empathy. And those are things that are hard to teach. Those are things that you can't just uh, you know, take, a, take an online class for 30 minutes and suddenly learn. Um, you know, so in many ways, I think the ability to you know, go online and learn Ruby on Rails is perhaps easier than the time investment it takes to really understand another human from another background, which may or may not require you know, years of conversations, years of uh, sort of debates and, and, and literature and, and art and things like that. And so um, I think it's just not to forget those two sides. And so the, the counterintuitive truth that, that I think is, is out there that people haven't yet recognized is that the investment in education in things that are non-explicitly vocational, that are not directly related to the job that you get tomorrow, those actually have a lot of value. And those are the things that may or may not become more relevant, you know, as we move forward in 10 or 20 years. Interesting. So the book is called uh, The Fuzzy and the Techie. uh, And the book is coming out when, Scott? Comes out April 25th, so next Tuesday. So next Tuesday. So please go ahead and buy the book, um, read it. If nothing else, I think it will give you uh, a lot of different perspectives to look at um, how technology is moving and where we are moving. uh, uh, And uh, at best, you will understand the importance of um, having someone who understands human behavior, human psychology, uh, and comes from a different perspective and the importance that those perspectives bring in when it comes to building and creating great products. Uh, So Scott, where can people uh, connect with you online? So the easiest place, uh, I'm at Twitter. I'm, I'm Scott E Hartley uh, at uh, on Twitter and uh, the book URL is just fuzzytechie.com. And uh, it's obviously it's on Amazon and a number of other bookstores uh, across the web. But yeah, please uh, reach out over Twitter, uh, facebook.com slash fuzzy techie as well. And uh, I'm pretty available online. So I'm happy to answer questions or engage with people, um, you know, where to find me. Super. Thanks a lot for taking time and talking to us, uh, 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 Scott. Uh, it was a pleasure. Thank you so much, Mukesh. Thank you for listening to this episode of Pushing Beyond the Obvious. If you like the show and would like to support, please head over to iTunes or wherever you are listening to this show and rate us and write a review. Till next time, have fun.